a privilege to gather again. Um, I am thankful that the church doesn't have to be a place where you got to put your life together before you show up. You got to have a smile on your face and you got to act like all is well. The church ought to be more like a hospital for hurting and sick people that we can come as we are uh, because we are in great need. We are needy people, desperately needy people. And we come week after week because we're needy people and we need what only God can give us. And uh, the theme of this morning's message might be a little bit heavy, but I think it's something that we need to hear. And we not only need to hear in general, I think in particular right now it's something we need to hear. It's a topic that uh, we're going to find in the Gospel of Mark. You could start turning there, and we're in chapter 5, and we're going to be in verses 21 to 43. In 2010... I was at the church working at a little Baptist church there. Asher and I had been only married for a couple of years. Got a phone call when I was in my office. It was my sister on the phone, and she was sobbing and in tears and could hardly talk. I didn't know what was wrong. I was asking Natalia, what's, what's, what's wrong? What's going on? And she told me that there had been an explosion at the place where my cousin worked, my cousins had worked, and that it looked like something terrible had happened. I didn't know, it caught me off guard, didn't know what in the world she's talking about. Well, what is it? What happened? Are you sure? I'm trying to ask her all the questions. Well, it turns out that that is exactly what happened, and my cousin, at 28 years old, lost his life. I was devastated, didn't know what to do. I'd grown up with him, and all I remember is this sense of all kinds of emotions flooding in. What do I do with this information? I walked down the stairs from my office. I told the secretary I'm going home. I went and found Ashley, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling grief, obviously. I'm feeling sadness. I'm feeling uh, 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 urgency to do something, but there's nothing to do. And so we, uh, we get in the car, and, and we start driving to go be with my family. I remember thinking, as this is all happening, as I'm driving down the road and I see people walking down the streets with smiles on their faces, and I see people, you know, they stop at the red light and the light turns green and they're taking too long to go, and I'm going, what in the world? Let's go. And I'm thinking, why are you smiling? And I'm thinking, all of a sudden, I'm starting to ask, well, why don't you understand what's happened here? The rest of the world didn't seem to get it, and everyone just seemed to be carrying on with their life as if nothing was wrong. Well, of course, nothing was wrong to them. They didn't know what had just happened to my family. But I'm thinking, I'm suffering here. Don't you get it? I'm in pain. How can you just carry on as if all is well? Strangely, a quote from the Russian short story writer came to my mind. His name's Anton Chekhov. I couldn't get it out of my mind. I went back and looked it up and read it again, and, and here's what it said. Every happy man should have someone with a little hammer at his door to knock and remind him that there are unhappy people and that, however happy he may be, life will, sooner or later, show its claws and some misfortune will befall him. Illness, poverty, loss, and then no one will see or hear him, just as he has now neither seen or heard others. 
But there is no man with a hammer, and the happy just go on living like a little fluttered leaf, like an aspen tree in the wind, carrying on with the petty cares of life as if everything is all right. It was at that moment in my life that life showed some of its claws. And I'm sure that you have experienced those types of moments where life Although you had lived maybe a somewhat happy and comfortable life, that something tragic happened, something painful happened, and maybe you, like me, were wondering, how could anyone just continue on like this as if everything's normal because I'm in pain? And I do want to say that Christians ought to be the kind of people who can recognize that this is a reality in a fallen world. We are not the type of people who try to act as if suffering doesn't exist. We are not the kind of people who try to just push it away. We are not stoics. Uh, we can look into the world and understand that, yes, suffering happens. Pain is real. We know why it has existed in the world when we read our Bibles that because of sin, the curse has fallen upon the world and upon humanity, and therefore death exists. Disease has corrupted all humanity, and we live in a fallen world that death appears with regularity. And so we ask the question, we always have to be asking the question, well, how do we make it in a world like this? How do you make it in a world where there is pain, where life does show claws? How do you survive week in, week out? Because if life hasn't shown its claws to you yet, it certainly will at some point in the future. Now, we're going to come to our text, and what we're going to see is a few people where life is bearing its claws. We're going to see a few people who are facing death itself. And they're going to experience some of the common experiences that people in those situations face. We're going to meet them and we're going to see how Jesus interacts with them. It is going to be some precious truth for us as we learn what it is like to live in a world that is cursed, that has fallen, where death takes us all we got to be able to process life in light of the fallenness of this world. How do we deal with this stuff? In our text, we're going to be meeting a man who has to deal with the reality of his 12-year-old daughter who is dying. In our text, we're going to meet a woman who has been wrecked by the ravages of disease, physically in agony, financially in ruins, socially made an outcast. And we're going to read it and we're going to be reminded this is life. This is life in a Genesis 3 world. How do we function? Let's turn to the text. Start in verse 21 of chapter 5. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. And he was with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. 
And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see, the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began, began walking, for she was 12 years of age. They were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. In this text, we encounter, first, the ravages of death. If you're taking notes, we'll start with that. We're noticing first that life is ravaged by death. You first see it with Jairus. Of course, Jairus himself isn't dying, but him, he encounters something that has overcome his daughter, and we don't know the nature of the disease, but we do know that Jairus' daughter is facing something so traumatic that he is so desperate, he's racing through the crowd to find Jesus because his daughter is about to die. We're going to look at some of the aspects of life's pain in this first section here. First, this is what we see with Jairus. It is the pain of death. The pain of death. There's something that is, uh, something about death that scares us. There's a lot of things we feel we can control in life, right? We can control decisions that we make from day to day. We can control things like where we live and who we befriend and what kind of career we put together. We sense a, an amount of control that we have over those things in our life. But death is something that we cannot control. Death is something that does not discriminate. It does not follow our directions. It does not respect our desires. We cannot control it at all. Even Jairus, who is a man of the synagogue, probably a good and well-respected man, is facing something that's utterly out of his control. And it's not the fact that he's dying, but it's the fact that his precious and beloved daughter is dying. I don't know if there's anything worse than the suffering of children. It has to be among some of the most grievous and heart-wrenching types of suffering. But this is what's happening to Jairus, and it's another demonstration that this is the nature of the clause of this fallen world, that death comes, it is no respecter of persons, and we cannot control how or when it comes. The ravages of death is painful, and Jairus is experiencing that. Secondly, we're going to see the pain of disease. The poor woman, 
Uh, The poor woman, as Jesus is now following Jairus, he's going through the crowd, and there's this one particular woman that is pointed out there, and she seems to have suffered in a unique way. Verse 25 says that this woman had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, you might say that she's not facing immediate death, but she's definitely facing the curse of death. The the, the way that God cursed the world after Genesis chapter 3 is that we all have begun to die. It is a hard reality to swallow. It is a reality that we try to push to the margins of our life as much as we possibly can. We hate to think about it, but often disease enters our life and it reminds us that we are, in fact, dying. Disease reminds us of that. And that's what's happening with this woman. For 12 years, she has suffered this ailment that she cannot get rid of. It would have not only devastated her physically, her body, but also this would have been something devastating her ability to function as a normal part of society. According to Leviticus 15.25, this woman would have been ceremonially unclean for all this time. She could not function like a normal Jew in society. And based on the way that the legalistic Pharisees led the society, it's most likely that she was shamed. It's likely that she was an outcast. It's likely that she was marginalized and unable to participate in the normal worship of the people of God in Israel. She is experiencing the pain of disease. And from these two people, we see this, that suffering happens. That suffering exists in the old and in the young, in the honorable and in the outcast, in the educated and in the uneducated. Jairus, the religious leader, and this woman, the social and unclean outcast, are both equalized before the gaping jaws of death made desperate. That's what death does, doesn't it? It brings a sense of desperation. It brings a sense of fear that we cannot control what's about to happen It makes us desperate to search for something, anything that we can grab onto and give us a foundation. You see that in both of these characters, they're absolutely desperate. All of humanity has been desperately seeking some way to escape the claws of death, and yet we have never been able to. Much of humanity's uh, efforts has been to alleviate suffering, to eliminate disease, to stop death from taking us, and we have never been successful. All throughout history, we've dreamed about ways to overcome death. You got the legends of the fountain of youth. In Cleveland, Ohio, there's this sculpture that if you were to go there and find it, it would be of a man reaching up into heaven, engulfed in flames around his feet. The name of the sculpture is the fountain of eternal life, and it symbolizes man's ongoing attempt to reach for something that will help him overcome death itself. We've all been trying to get away from it, to get out of its grasp. It gives us a sense of desperation. Dr. Ian Pearson recently made the claim that if you're under 40 years old, you're probably not going to die. Because by the year 2050, technology will be so advanced that we'll be able to 3D print organs, upload consciousness, and essentially continue to replace body parts forever. Don't count on it, church. It's not going to happen. Why? 
because the wages of sin is? It is appointed unto man once to die. And after that comes judgment. We are all going to die. (laughs) You didn't come here this morning to hear that, did you? But let me remind you, this is true. You and I will die. We will die. Every single one of us will die unless the Lord returns and calls us home before it. We are all going to die. It's a reality that sometimes we try to escape, but every once in a while we have to be faced with this reality. Sometimes people have faced it with humor. Uh, Some of you have heard of the author, the children's poet, Shel Silverstein. You heard of him? A light in the attic, where the sidewalk ends. Grew up on these poems. Here's one of them. You can quit smoking, but you're still going to die. Cut out coke, and you're still going to die. Eliminate everything, fatty or fried. You can get real healthy, but you're still going to die. You want to know the chorus? You're still going to, still going to, still going to die. You're still going to, still going to, still going to die. You can even give aerobics one more try. (laughs) But when the music stops playing, you're still going to die. He's not a believer, but he got that at least right. We're all going to die. And it might be a little funny. It might be a little crude. But here's the reality. You and I are going to die. We will face death. And after death, the Bible says there is judgment. But what happens, even for unbelievers, the prospect of death is so frightening, so scary, so unknown that it sets people in a frenzy up until the time they die, trying anything and everything to escape the claws of death. And this is our third sub-point of our first point. We're looking at the ravages of death. We see the pain of death, the pain of disease. And here we're going to also see the pain of desperation. What's happening with Jairus? Here's this honorable man found in verse 22. He's one of the rulers of the synagogue. And he sees Jesus, and he's rushing through the crowd. He falls at the feet of Jesus. Verse 23, he implores him earnestly. He's begging Jesus. My little daughter is at the point of death. He's crying out. He's desperate. He knows what's happening, that death is coming to his own household, and he's scared, and he's running in desperation to find anything that might help him escape death itself for his daughter. And then you find this woman as Jairus is passing through the crowd and Jesus is going with them, this woman. Look at verse 26. It says, she had suffered much under many physicians. She had gone from physician to physician, from doctor to doctor, and it says that she had spent all she had and none of it worked. She was desperate for something that could take away this disease that was eating away at her life and there was nothing she could do. Rather, it all got worse. You could almost picture her after years of spending money hoping, oh, maybe this is the cure. Maybe this doctor will have the answer. Maybe this physician is going to be able to do it for me. And she invests a load of money, and it comes back with nothing. And she tries again. Maybe this investment will make me well. And the doctor says no. And you can almost picture her looking at her last bit of money and thinking, I know there's one more option. There's this doctor here, and maybe if I just give him this money, he's going to be able to give me the one thing I need. She's utterly desperate. She's run out of options until she goes to that last physician, and she pays him, and the physician comes back and says, I'm sorry, there's really nothing I can do. 
That's utter hopelessness. I mean, she now has no money. She has no friends in this society that we know of. I mean, the text doesn't even give her a name. She's marginalized. She's unclean. And death has made her so desperate, she's paid everything to get something that'll give her hope, and it's left her utterly hopeless to the point in verse 28, she's kind of becoming superstitious. Maybe if I touch his garments, I would be made well. This is what death does to us all. In light of our own mortality, it makes us desperate. The presence of death and pain create in us a kind of frenzied, flurried desperation. And we run from thing to thing, hoping for something that will, will, will stop death from grabbing a hold of us. We will run to gurus. We will run to meditation techniques or self-help books or mysticism or some politics or new forms of medicine, just trying to grasp at anything. I've seen some people flock prosperity preachers, and they're willing to give all their money for these faith healers to heal them, and they are left empty, they're left penniless because it does not work, and they are disappointed. This is the world we live in, and it doesn't help for us to turn off our eyes and just act as if it doesn't. This is our world. Blessed are those who mourn, because they understand the nature of this fallen world. Secondly, I want us to look at the usefulness of pain real quick. It has made these people desperate. Both Jairus and the woman are absolutely desperate. And for them, it sends them in desperation to find any kind of cure. And I want to ask you this. Would Jairus have come to Jesus had his daughter not been on her deathbed? Would the woman have come to Jesus had she not been sick for 12 years? God was in all this, wasn't he? That in the desperation that is caused by suffering and death, God was in it with these two individuals, and he was using their sickness, their pain, their death to draw them to his son, Jesus Christ. Would Jairus have come? Would the woman have come? My answer is, I don't think so. God used that to draw them in. It has been said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. What is the sense of desperation for that you experience? Do you believe that God is sovereign over it? That if you have come to a point where there is fear and there is anxiety and there is dread and there is terror, that God is in that doing something in you for your good? We have to believe this. I want to show you this is the explicit teaching of Scripture. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is absolutely how the Apostle Paul thought of his own life and his own ministry. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Watch this. For we were so utterly 
burdened. You ever felt that way? So utterly burdened. Beyond our strength. Ever felt that way? This is something I can't handle. You ever said something like that? This is something beyond me. This is something I don't have the strength to get through. Well, that's how Paul felt. Utterly burdened. Beyond our strength. That we, listen, despaired of life itself. To the point, they're, they're, they're so suffering, the burden is so great that it's, we're going to die. Look at verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's the situation. Well, what was God doing in this? Look at verse, look at the, the next part of that verse. Why did God do that to you, Paul? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Why did God take these apostles who were doing the work of the Lord and so utterly break them down, so utterly afflict them to the point where they despaired of life itself? They thought that they were going to die. Why did He do that? So that they would learn not to depend on their own strength, not to recognize themselves as sufficient, but to make them know deep down in their bones that it was God who is trustworthy. It is God who is their hope. It is God where they rest their hopes. The pain was useful. It was a tool in God's tool, tool belt to craft his people and to make them what he wants them to be. Has God been stripping you of your strength? Stripping you of every sense of control, every illusion of self-sufficiency, every illusion of self-reliance. Well, why would he do that? To break you down to the point where you despair of life itself. Why? So you can know that you have a God who is strong, who is gracious, who is reliable. Okay, we sang that song, I Ask the Lord. All right, let's, let's pull out your bulletin if you got it right there. Find the song. This is, this is what this song teaches us. This is why we sing this. I asked the Lord that I might grow. You ever asked the Lord that God would grow you? I hope so. This is a good prayer. I want to grow. This is written by John Newton, famous hymn writer. He wants to grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face, these great desires. And God is going to answer his prayer and how does he do it? Look at the second stanza. How does God do it? But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. What? I'm asking for wisdom. I'm asking for grace. I'm asking for faith. I want to grow. And God is going to answer my prayer. Well, how is he going to do it? He's going to bring me to the point of despairing. What? Is that what I asked for? Instead of just... This is stanza three. I thought that he was just going to answer my request and immediately take away my sin and give me rest. That's not what he did. Verse, the, the fourth stanza. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. He's allowing me to see how my sins are so wicked, how my Life is so utterly hopeless apart from him that I can't help myself, can't change myself. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. 
across all the fair designs I'd schemed. Now, you might be wondering, what in the world is that last line? <laughs> and Michael's saying something different. <laughs> and I get why, because this doesn't make any sense to us. And there's a modern version, so I'm going to explain this real quick. There's a modern version that rewrites it in a way that we can make sense. And you all were singing, what does it mean to have my gourds blasted? <laughs> Think of Jonah. This is actually what he meant when he wrote this. Jonah has this vine grow up all around him, and he feels pretty good about that vine, doesn't he? When he's standing outside of Nineveh, and he's looking at the Ninevites, and he watches God bring salvation, and then God brings this great vine around him, this gourd it's called, but then what does God do? He blasts that gourd. He sends the scorching wind, and it kills the, 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 the vine around him, and it makes him suffer, and in that moment, God is teaching Jonah something profound about his own heart, that God is a God of compassion, that even the most wicked people like the Ninevites. Did any of you know that? Uh, I think most of us had no idea that's what we were singing when we thought we were singing about blasting our gourds. But that's what he was talking about. He's talking about comforts being removed so that you learn something you never had known about God. Comforts being eliminated. Self-reliance being removed. The crutches you've been leaning on being slapped out from underneath you. Why? So that you will learn to depend on Christ and Christ alone. That's what this is singing about. And so if you have ever prayed for wisdom, if you have ever prayed for growth, if you have ever prayed for faith, the answer to your prayer will often come in the form of pain. And you will be taught to say that to know Christ is infinitely better than to live in comfort. We will experience the sweet reality that knowing Christ is infinitely greater than having a comfortable life. So we see the usefulness of pain in our text because it was pain that God uses to bring these people to a point of desperation where they're now searching for him. Let's look now at the third point here, the compassion of Christ. Because in our text, you might say, after hearing that previous point, that doesn't sound very compassionate, that God would allow people to experience pain, that he would even afflict his own people to bring them to a point where they're utterly burdened beyond the strength they have. But it is absolutely part of God's love and compassion for his children. So in this text, we see that Jairus comes to Jesus. He again, we see he's utterly desperate. And he comes and he begs Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Verse 24, he went with him. I just want to point out real quick that the compassion of Christ has been on display all through the Gospel of Mark. We, we can't forget this, that the very fact that Jesus is in the world, that he has left his palace in heaven where there is nothing but glorious bliss, and he has come to dwell among a sinful, filthy people is a demonstration of such grace and compassion we cannot fathom. He lives in the gutters with us because he loves. That's he comes. He, his whole life is ministry. His whole life is in public amongst the people, loving and serving and teaching them. But then here's a particular person, a desperate person. And even Jesus is teaching and talking and ministering to the crowds, he then stops and he goes with Jairus. What compassion. 
And you might say, well, Jairus was an honorable man in society. Of course he went with Jairus. Jairus had some clout. Jairus was well known. But then you see in verse 30, Jesus is going through the crowd, and there's a woman that has touched him, touched his garment. And Jesus perceives, it says there in verse 30, perceived in himself the power had gone out from him. Immediately he turned about in the crowd and said, who touched me? I believe that this is Jesus who had limited his omniscience, and in this point of his incarnation, he is not tapping into his all-knowing power. He is actually operating as a man like you and me. He doesn't know who touched him. Who touched my garments? In verse 31, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in and fell and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He stops for this poor, unclean woman. Compassion. He then speaks to her, a social outcast, undeserving. In verse 34, he tells her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The language of Jesus' statement to this woman shows us that, yes, he heals her physically, but there is a spiritual healing that also takes place. Go in peace. You've been made well by your faith. Such compassion. She comes just to get healed of her disease, and Jesus gives her something greater than she could have ever bargained for, gives her a salvation. Jesus is demonstrating compassion to these people. He goes with them when there is need. He listens when they come to him. And even the weak, timid woman who is an outcast, who is used to being rejected, Jesus turns to her. He's compassionate. He has a heart for you. You might be someone honorable, but you also might be desperate and you need Jesus. And if you come to him, he has a time to give you the attention you need. You may be an outcast and you're desperate and you can come to Jesus and he has a heart for you. He is by nature merciful. He is by nature generous. He is the most sympathetic person in the entire universe. You can come to him at any point and you will not be cast out. Let's look at the power of Jesus now. The woman is healed. God works through Christ in that moment to bring healing to the woman. She immediately is fixed of her disease. She's saved, reconciled to God, all by the power of Christ. And as the story goes on, it apparently had taken long enough where he'd been distracted from his time with Jairus going to the little girl. And so by the time verse 35 comes, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter's dead. It's too late, basically. Why trouble the teacher any further? She's already died. Jesus overhears what they said. He says, all right. He says to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother James, and they go in there. There's all kinds of weeping and wailing. Everyone's sad that this has happened. Verse 39, he entered. He said to them, why are you weeping? You're making this big commotion. Jesus knew what he was about to do. They had no idea. 
The child's not dead but sleeping, indicating it's already been done. You just got to wake her up now. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kuma, Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up. She was dead. And Jesus raised her from the dead. The woman was sick. And by his word, by his power, he raised her from the dead. What we're seeing in the Gospel of Mark is meant to whet our appetite. It's meant to show us who is this man called Jesus. It is meant to introduce us to the Son of God that we might know him and have a relationship with him, that we might come to believe him and embrace him as our Lord. But all of this that we see in the Gospel of Mark is preview. It is preview of something that will be made more manifest as it's demonstrated perfectly in the future. Some of you maybe have seen a new preview that came out for a movie that you're interested in going to see, and you watch that preview. And if the preview's well done, at the end of it, you're, you're, you want more. It's like, oh, I want to go see that movie. That one looks good. Well, this is like a little preview. Jesus is showing, I have authority over disease. I can banish disease. Jesus is saying, I have authority over death. I can cast death away. I can throw death into the lake of fire, and that's what he will do. I have authority over death itself. Jesus is demonstrating here a power that is his, that one day he will express to the entire universe this is the preview that we see here. And if this is just a preview, it ought to create in us a longing for the true, real demonstration of the greatness and the majesty of his glory and his power, which is coming. See, you see, Mark presents Jesus as God's solution to the world's problems. The problem of sin, the problem of disease, the problem of death itself. The good news is that God has provided a Savior who has authority over disease and over death and has the power to conquer these things. The text is showing us again and again, we're all diseased and Jesus has power to banish disease. We're all dying and Jesus comes and shows that he can raise the dead. It's as if we're all drowning. It's as if we're all dying. And Jesus is the one champion of the world who God has sent to be the Savior to anyone who can come to him. You see, the curse, that dreadful curse, it's on every one of us, isn't it? We're all diseased. We're all dying. It's so widespread. It's so pervasive. It's unchangeable. And we're all scrambling for things that we think that will help us, but we're all just staring into the abyss. But Christ shows up and he demonstrates that he and he alone has power over disease and death. And he will go from this event to the cross. And at the cross, he will lay his life down as a sacrifice for sin, to make atonement for the sins of his people. But he will, three days later, 
demonstrate his authority over death in the most extravagant and final way, in that he will rise from the dead. He has risen from the dead. That is past tense now. He has conquered death. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, where now he sits as the head of the church, having all authority in heaven and on earth. And he has said that he will one day call all people into judgment. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and all the dead will one day rise with him because he will call them to rise from the dead. And all people from all times will stand before the judge of the universe, and some will receive eternal life, and some will be cast into the lake of fire. And who will be the judge who defines who is who? This Jesus. I want to ask you, if you're here this morning, do you know for sure that you will be welcomed into eternal life on that day? Do you know for sure that you will be welcomed into the presence of God into eternity on that day of judgment? You're not sure. If there's an inkling of question, you have to ask someone for help to help you assess, to help you think it through. I would encourage you don't go to sleep tonight before you do that, if you have that question on your mind. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7 that there are many who on that day think that Jesus will receive them into the kingdom. And he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Because they were deceived. He is all-powerful. He is the king of the ages. He has authority over disease. He has authority over death. He has died and risen from the dead. He is alive right now. He has all authority in heaven on earth. And we all will stand before him one day. And I want to finish with this, our fifth point. Look at this. Here's what I want you to look at this. Look at how you can come to Jesus. Both Jairus and the woman not only got the miracle that they desired, they got the salvation they couldn't have even asked for. I want to point something out. I don't know if there's two people that maybe could be more of a contrast than Jairus and this woman. Even look at the way their faith is expressed. Jairus comes with bold, expectant faith. Did you see that? Verse 23. He comes up to him, he implores him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. What confidence. I know, Jesus, that if you come, you will be able to save my daughter. There's no doubt in his mind. He's absolutely confident. Look at the woman. She's not even confident to come up and talk to him. She won't even face him. She's sneaking in. She's trying to maneuver her way through the crowd. Maybe if, if I just touch him, maybe if I just get a hold of his garment, maybe, maybe that will do something. It's a complete opposite. But here's the thing. It's faith for both of them. And the faith is different in both of them. One is confident, expectant, and earnest, and one is fearful and timid and trembling. And let me tell you what, they both receive grace. You know why? 
because salvation does not rest on the strength or intensity of your faith, but on the strength and compassion and power of the Savior. Your salvation, your hope, and your assurance does not rest on how strong your faith is, but on how strong your Savior is. And so if you have a mustard seed of faith in the strong Savior, you will be saved. And so you can come to him trembling, fearful, timid, wondering. And if you cling to Christ, you will have all of him. And he will redeem all of you. That is glorious. So all you trembling ones, who are wondering if God could ever love me, if I could ever be loved by God, just come to him. Because your hope is not in the fact that you have good enough faith, but on the fact that he is compassionate, that he is kind, that he loves to save the weak, that he loves to save sinners, that he loves to welcome the filthy and the vile to himself. He loves to do that. And so you come to him as a weak and trembling sinner, and you will by no means, be cast out. D.A. Carson, to explain this, uses this fantastic illustration. He says, imagine two Jewish men on the night before the first Passover. If you know the Passover, it's the angel of death is going to sweep through Egypt, and all the people of Egypt were meant to slaughter the lamb and put the blood over the doorposts. And when they put the blood over the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over and spare whoever did that. God's people were told to do that. And so D.A. Carson uses this illustration. He says, imagine two Jewish men. I'll call them Smith and Brown. They're two Jewish names, right? And he says, imagine them talking on the night before the angel of death is coming. Brown says, I'm a little nervous about tonight. I'm a little bit afraid of what's going to happen. And Smith goes, well, what's the big deal? You heard what God said through his servant Moses that we're supposed to take the lamb, we're supposed to slaughter it, take the blood, put it over the doorpost. And if we do that, God has promised that we're going to be passed over, we're going to be spared, everything's going to be fine. And the other goes, oh, well, yeah, yeah, I know. I, I, I did that. Uh, I believe that. But man, it's been kind of scary in Egypt recently. You've seen all the flies and and all the plagues coming around. I mean, it's just been kind of weird out here. And that angel of death is, is supposed to come. And uh, I got my son, and I don't want him to die. I, I just, you know, I'm just a little nervous. I can't wait till this thing's over. And the other says, bring it on. I trust in the blood of the Lamb. I trust in the promises of God. Imagine that night. The angel of death sweeps through the land. D.A. Carson asked the question to drive the point home. He asked this, which of these men lost their son? Neither. Why? Because the salvation was given by God as a gift to those who believe and act by faith, but it is not the faith. Listen, it is not the faith itself that is the reason for the salvation. It is the promise of God. It is the blood of the Lamb. It is the compassion of the Savior. 
It is the mercy of God. That is the grounds of our assurance of salvation. That is the grounds of our hope. It's not the fact that we have some amazing amount of faith. It's the fact that we have an amazing Savior who is willing and able to save even those who, like this woman, come in fear and trembling. And so here's what this means. If you haven't repented and trusted in Him, and you're not sure you ever could, you can come right now and have assurance that He will receive even you. And if you have trusted Him, you can be reminded again this morning that He will not grow tired of you, that He will not be fed up with you, that you can continue coming back to Him as a source of your, your hope and your grace and everything that you need. You will find your sufficiency in Him because He is a never-ending fountain of mercy. And so your hope and your assurance is based on the graciousness the generosity, the mercy of our kind and compassionate and powerful Savior. So we started by talking about the reality of death, the reality of pain and death and disease. It might be morbid to say this, but I actually believe this, that one of my jobs as a pastor in a local church is to help you die well. Don't take that the wrong way. I want to help you die. I want to help you die well. You are going to die. And the way we die well is by dying in Christ. By dying with full assurance of who he is and what he's done for us. In fact, I want to actually extend that. I don't think it's just my job. I think it's your job, church, to help one another live and die well. Life is a vapor. We will all face eternity soon. And once you're at the bedside of a dying man, you don't care about the size of your church. You care that you help them enter eternity prepared in Christ and trusting him. Church, I want to call upon you. We will live lives that have tragedy. We will face pain. We will face disease and death. And we all need to be there for each other to prepare us for the day we meet the Maker. Someone's sick. We want to be at their bedside. We want to read them Scripture. We want to sing them a hymn. We want to help them find their hope and security in Christ. I'm reminded of the end of Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read it. It's the scene where, where Christian and hopeful come to the river. And of course, that river represents death. And they come up to the river, and Christian knows that to get to the celestial city, they got to cross through this river. And Christian is terrified. He faces death, the river, and he's absolutely out of his mind, scared. He doesn't know what to do, and so he knows he has to, but he begins stepping into the waters. And as soon as he begins stepping into the waters, he begins to experience a kind of horror, uh, a kind of terror of death. He begins to get disoriented. He begins to lose his footing. He starts saying, I'm sinking, I'm sinking. He's crying out. He says, I sink in deep waters. The billows are going over my head. He's crying out. He says, I'm going to be lost. But his friend Hopeful is there. And Hopeful steadies him and says, 
Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good. Church, that's our lives. That we are always saying to each other, there is a foundation. His name is Christ. He has power over disease. He has power over death. One day he will raise us all to eternal life. We will rule and reign with him in glory forever. You have a foundation. And so we speak this to each other. We remind each other of these things. We steady each other in these things. And we are always, as this text reminds us, pointing ourselves back to him. And so when we get to that day when we cross the river, we want to be the type of people who hold each other. We steady each other. We say, take heart. There's a foundation that you have. You are holding Christ, and Christ is holding you. You are safe. You are secure. You are loved. Take heart. And Christian finds his footing, and he makes it to the other side, and he enters into that celestial city and experiences the eternal glory that awaits him. Church, can we be that way? We got to be that way for each other. Let's pray. Lord, we see in your text that you gave us this morning that you are compassionate, that you are powerful, that you hold the keys of death in Hades, that you have the power over it. Lord, we know that we are all desperate like these people we saw in our text, and we can try all kinds of things that will never work, and we need Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would be a church that points to Christ, that we would be like hopeful in Pilgrim's Progress as we help each other find the foundation of Christ, that we help each other live well in Christ so that we can die in Christ, so that we can live with unshakable confidence that though we will suffer, though we will die, that we will be safe and secure in the arms of our Savior. So lift our eyes to him and help us walk by faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.